we finally made it to the end of our study. However, I would that we camp here just for a little while. Have you ever noticed how many 316s there are in Scripture that are very precious texts? Of course, the one that comes immediately to most people's mind is John 3.16. You know, I sort of miss that guy with the rainbow hair in the in the end zone, you know, holding up John 3. I don't know whatever happened to the guy. Anyway, he sort of disappeared, but we all are acquainted, I hope, with John 3.16. You're, you're right here next to 1 Timothy, just a page or so away. Look at 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy... Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, what a text. Go to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Those are great texts. We have one before us today in 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. Can I read it again? Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Now, you do understand chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. Uh, They appeared in our Bibles, oh, about the year 1550. A French scholar and printer, uh, Robert Estien, his name, we know him perhaps as Robert Stephanus, uh, he was printing a new edition of the Scriptures. Remember that Erasmus had printed and published a Greek text of the New Testament in 1516. So this is, you know, 35 years later that uh, Estienne is printing up a new edition of the Scriptures, and uh, it is in Latin, and he is the first to insert verses and chapters that we have in our Bibles today. His son tells the story that he did it as he was riding a horse from Paris down to Lyon, France, and then on his return journey. And some of the scholars have sort of joked that some of the bad chapter divisions were when the horse tripped. May or may not be true, but uh, you understand it was quite an undertaking to divide the Scripture into verses and chapters. And I'm glad he did. It certainly makes our life a whole lot more easy. Today, I want to camp here on this verse, on this text, perhaps for the next couple of weeks. And do a study, sort of an excursus on the subject of peace. It began to dawn on me as I was working up this text and this message for today of how sort of overlooked this subject is in Protestant circles. The Roman Catholics speak more about the peace of God, in my view, than do Protestants. And yet, though we don't talk about it that much, it is a huge subject in Scripture. Many, many references to it. We we sort of talk a lot about amazing grace. We just sang a song. We don't have too many songs that talk about amazing peace. We talk about a lot about grace. We talk a lot about love. We talk a lot about faith. Some of those words are very common. Oftentimes we'll do a study on one of those. Very little do we speak about peace. 
And that's as much a criticism of my own ministry. I look back over the years, I've been a pastor, and uh, I haven't dealt with it that much. So I want to correct that, if we may, in the next couple of weeks. It is a vast subject, and we will be talking about what we would call general peace, the peace of God in general, objective peace with God, our relationship with God, subjective peace, what we might call inner peace, Boy, if there's ever a subject that's popular today, well, back a few years ago when transcendental meditation was going on, back in my Nashville days, we had a, we were meeting in a motel room, and you never knew what was going to be going on across the hall, and it was this, um, new age group that was meeting in there on one Sunday morning, and as we walked in, they have these, you, they had their registration desks and everything, a journey to inner peace, to a journey to get in touch with your inner self. It cost $3,000. I didn't know my inner self was so far away. I didn't know it was that long a trip. Uh, but anyway, a lot of people made a lot of money in those days, teaching you how to find inner tranquility and peace. Well, the Scripture deals with exactly those subjects. Today we'll sort of begin with just a general overview and I hope if you are disappointed at the end, you'll remember there is more coming. I certainly will not give you the whole picture this morning. First of all, let's talk about what is peace. What's its definition? Peace is a very, very broad term, as it's used in Scripture, encompassing a lot of areas and a lot of things. For instance, in the Old Testament, most of you are familiar with the fact that the word for peace in Hebrew is the word shalom, or some variation of that word. It is used in Israel today, uh, sort of like aloha is used in Hawaii as both a greeting and a goodbye, so the word shalom is used as a greeting and when you say goodbye. The word shalom, as it is used in the Old Testament, encompasses a lot of things. For instance, it means well. You're, when you wish someone shalom, peace, you're wishing them well-being. You're wishing them happiness. You're wishing them friendship, prosperity, health, safety. All of those things are sort of encompassed under this one big umbrella word, shalom. When you turn to the New Testament, there is a Greek word, Irene. It's where we get our female name, Irene, from this, from an English transliteration of that word. Irene means a state of peace, a state of quietness, a state of tranquility. And so, as it's used in Scripture, you'll find that peace is used sometimes contrasted with war, a state of peace. Uh, for instance, Joab was condemned by David for having shed the blood of war in a time of peace. Remember that. Other places you will find peace is used as opposed to danger. First uh, Thessalonians 5, you're right here at it. Just back up a couple of pages. First Thessalonians 5. Oh, I've got the wrong text here. Uh, it is the text 
that when they shall say peace and safety, judgment shall be upon them. Okay? Just take my word for it. That's what the text says, wherever it is. It's in one of those numbers Robert S. Stan came up with. You know where it is, Mike? Five, three. I got an extra two in there. First Thessalonians five, three. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Notice there the idea of safety is the idea behind the word peace. Then we find it sometimes as contrasted to confusion. When Paul is dealing with the abuse of gifts in the Corinthian church, he says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Uh, confusion there is the idea, we would say, of commotion, disturbance, free-for-all. Okay, God is not the author of confusion. He is instead the opposite concept, the author of peace. There are times that we use this as a statement of lack of trouble. Uh, there's an interesting text in Romans. I'll turn over there and read it for you. I've got the reference right here. In Romans chapter 14, many of you remember our brother Jerry Bridges, his book on the pursuit of holiness out of Hebrews 12, 14, that reads, follow after, the word there in Greek means to chase, to pursue. Follow after peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Notice, chase peace with all men. Same thing here in Romans 14, in chapter 14, verse 17. Um, wrong text again. Man, I was out of whack, I guess, on the computer this week. Romans 14, verse 19. Let us therefore follow after. Same word in Greek is over there in Hebrews 12. Chase. Let us pursue. Let us follow after the things which make for peace and the things with which one may edify one another. Notice here the idea of peace is staying out of trouble. Mind your own business. Seek the things that make for peace, not the things that stir up trouble. Seek those things which build people up that in opposite idea, tear them down. Notice that peace is oftentimes part of Paul's greetings to the New Testament churches. He will say, grace, charis, and peace, irene, to you. It is interesting that this sort of brings together the two greetings of both the Hebrews and the Gentiles. The idea of peace is the Hebrew greeting. The idea of of grace is the common Gentile greeting. We find sometimes that God is referred to as a God of peace. Uh, here is the text I was heading to a moment ago in 1 Thessalonians 5. In verse 23, notice we just studied these not that long ago. 1 Thessalonians 5:23, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God sometimes is referred to by this label. He's the God of peace. The gospel sometimes is referred to as the gospel of peace. It's about the only time my feet will ever be called good-looking. But it's out of that text in Isaiah that's quoted by Paul in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of what? 
peace. So sometimes the gospel is characterized this way. It is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace. And a very important text in Romans 14, verse 17, Paul will say, For the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but in righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Ghost. Notice again how central the idea of peace is. In other words, you don't have to search far to find the Scriptures utilizing this term that is the focus of our study this morning. It is a major topic in the New Testament, but it is often ignored by us. And by us, I mean me. I'm guilty. I want to correct that. Notice that our text, as we look at it again, says, The Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. We have a question here. Who exactly is this Lord of peace? Um, as I pointed out a moment ago, the word, term God of peace, we just read a text where that is being used. So is this Lord of peace simply another way of using the word Lord to speak of God? In fact, six times in the New Testament, the phrase God of peace is used the last time right here in the chapter preceding this one. But this is the only place in the New Testament that you find this peculiar phrase, the Lord of peace. God of peace, six times, but the Lord of peace just here. And it is natural, I think, for us to apply this label to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to the Father, but to the Son. Now, it's certainly not out of line to to put it with the Father's name. We see that happening six other places in the New Testament. But it seems very natural and obvious that it is used here to speak of the Son for about three reasons. Number one, it's certainly not out of place to call him the Lord of peace because when we think back to the prophecies of the Old Testament, I'm sure, Kenny, uh, when you do the Christmas program, somehow in the program, Isaiah 9, verse 6 is going to come up. For unto us a son is born, unto us a child, a child is given, unto us a son is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of peace, the everlasting father, so forth. So in other words, it is certainly not out of line to speak of Jesus as the Lord of peace. That's what he's prophesied as being there in that wonderful prophecy of Isaiah. Secondly, we find that the God of peace gives peace through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me have you turn over to the book of Acts just for a moment. A very interesting verse here, Acts 10. Peter is preaching in the household of Cornelius the centurion. He's rather shocked. He's out of his element. He's standing in a Gentile's home, something that a good, pious Jew would never be found dead doing, let alone alive. And yet here he is. He's been brought there by the providence of God to speak to these Gentiles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 34, Acts 10, 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And here's what I want you to see. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, 
preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, that word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Just notice especially verse 36. The word of God here is spoken as the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace. If you know anything about the book of Isaiah, you know from about chapter 40 on, it is this message of peace to Jerusalem. The first 39 chapters is talking about the captivity that's coming, the warfare that is going to be occurring in her boundaries, her captivity to her enemy. But then from chapter 40 on, your warfare is accomplished. And now there is a message of peace being sent. That's what Peter's referring to here. God has spoken peace to his people Israel, but I want you to see this point. He's spoken peace. How does he put it? Publishing peace, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. That this peace that is coming to Israel is coming in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is entirely natural then for Paul to be using this label. He is the Lord of peace. In other words, the God of peace gives peace through his son, the Lord of peace. Then, lastly, notice the last verse of our text, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He could have said the grace of God be with you. But instead, it appears that he has in special view here the work, the ministry of the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, if you ask me, who exactly is this Lord of peace that is being addressed here in our text? My first hunch, I can't prove it without any question, but it appears to me that all the evidence points to the fact that it is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the second thing we ought to ask is, what in the world does this title mean? You've called him the Lord of Peace. When you call something the Lord of, or the, someone the Lord of something, we, we have several examples in the New Testament. I'm thinking of Jesus talking about a servant that didn't do what his master told him to do. And he said, when the Lord of that servant returns, that servant's going to get it. He's going to get judged. Now, what does it mean to call someone the Lord of a servant? Well, servant in the Greek meant slave. He's the owner. He's the ruler. He's the one who has sovereignty over the life of this person. To say the Lord of that servant... He's the master of the servant. Then you have Jesus talking about at one point, pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his field. You remember the text? What does it mean? He's talking about God. What does it mean, the Lord of the harvest? When you've got a harvest going on, there's one guy who owns the field. There's one fellow who owns the crop. There's a whole bunch of folks out there gathering the crop. And so in this context, the Lord of the harvest, again, is the one who owns the crop, owns the field, and he's the one responsible for sending forth laborers. That's why Jesus is saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. He's the one who hires the workers. He's the one who pays them at the end of the day. In other words, you get the idea to call God the Lord of the harvest means that he is over the harvest. It's his harvest 
And he is the one responsible for its gathering. In other words, he's the boss. The boss of that servant. The boss of the harvest. It speaks of someone, again, who has the right of ownership. Do you remember the story behind that phrase, the Lord of the vineyard? Jesus told a parable about a man who let out his vineyard. He rented it out to farmers, to husbandmen. They're working on the shares. I know a little bit about that, having grown up on a farm where a lot of our land that we leased and rented wasn't done on a per acre basis. You were doing it on a share. So at the end of the season, they're supposed to pony up the owner's share of the crop. We farmed cotton on the quarters. We farmed wheat on the thirds. You farm folks, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You city folks won't have a clue, okay? But that's the idea. That's how much they're supposed to get at the end of the harvest. That's the deal. That's the arrangement. Well, it came time for these guys to pony up. And the owner, the Lord of the vineyard, sends his servants to collect the rent, his share of the crop. And you remember, they mock some, they beat others. And finally, the owner said, okay, I'll send them my son. Surely they'll reverence my son. But what do they say? Oh, here comes the owner. Here comes the one, the heir of the vineyard. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. Now, you understand behind the parable, Jesus is prophesying of what is about to happen to him. That here are the priests and the scribes and rabbis. They are the ones with custodial care of the nation. They're the vineyard. They're the ones running the vineyard, although it's not their land They're doing it for God, you understand. They've been given a stewardship from God. And yet now when it's time to give God the fruit, they refuse to do it. And seeing the son come, they say, let's kill him. Let's seize it for ourselves. In other words, the Lord of the vineyards, the owner of the vineyard, and these workers have decided we're going to seize for ourselves what belongs to him. And so to speak of the Lord of the vineyard, the Lord of something, is someone who has control over it. It's the one who sends the workers. He's the one who hires them. He's the one who pays them their wages and rules it and controls it. Now, it's interesting that we never find Jesus anywhere called the Lord of grace, the Lord of mercy, the Lord of love. But here again, this unique phrase the Lord of peace. Why does that apply to Jesus? It applies because the whole realm of peace belongs to him. It's his realm. As we say, when someone's the Lord of something, it means they own it. It means they have jurisdiction over it. So it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of peace in that he is the one, it's his domain. He's the one who bestows it. He's the one who allows you to enjoy it. He's the one in whose possession peace is. And all things about the peace that we're talking about, peace with God, focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes together in his person, in his work. If you ever have peace with God, it's all going to be involved in his person, his work. Well, why do we need peace? And let me put it like this. I don't know how else to sugarcoat this thing. Because God has declared war on you. 
When we read the state of man in the sight of God, it is not that God looks down at man and has all these wonderful, warm, fuzzy-duzzy feelings. Like you mothers look at your little baby. He's a little love magnet. I don't know what you call him, you know. Love magnet. But God looks down upon mankind with revulsion, with disgust. Because man has revolted against his Lord, his ruler, his maker. Now, I've gone into this many times. We touched on it last week. But let me just put it this way. We are squatting on God's territory. You do remember the, the God is referred to as the Lord. Remember, Lord means owner, controller, sovereign over. He's the Lord of what? He's the Lord of heaven and earth. You're squatting on his territory. You're living on his land. You say, I got a deed to it. I don't care. It's his. You're eating his cows. You're catching his fish. You're breathing his air. You're drinking his water. And you have seized it as if it were yours. That's what these men that worked in the vineyard were doing. Let's kill him so it can be ours. And therein lies the problem that God looks down on man in not in love but in wrath because of man's unrighteousness and ungodliness. And please keep in mind there's more to the story than this. But if you don't start here, you'll never understand the rest of the story. Unless you understand the indignity of the, of the fall of man, the insult to the dignity of God, it is basically man the creature telling God to bug off. Get out of my life. I may nod my head to you every now and then, but this is mine and keep your hands off of it. And God has responded with a curse. With his wrath. Notice as the gospel begins in chapter 1 of Romans, it doesn't begin with the love of God. It begins with the wrath of God. There is this state of war. The scriptures use a word enmity. It is that feeling between enemies. Not necessarily hatred. You guys who have been in the military, we thank you for your service. Some of you have been in, I know Brother David was in combat in Vietnam. And there are times that you're shooting at the enemy and you say, well, you hate him. Well, no, you don't even know him. Sometimes you can't even see him, but he's your enemy. And so this state of warfare, state of animosity exists between the two of you. And so it is with God. We're described in Romans 5 when we're looking at how what salvation is, that we're described that when we were sinners, when we were enemies... God did some things for us. That's what makes his love so wonderful, his grace so amazing, is that we were not squeaky clean. We were not innocent. We were rebels. Wanting God to just keep his hands off of us and let us do our thing. Thank you very much. Our maker, our sovereign. What he has made, we seize for ourselves and treat it as if it is ours and God has no right to it. And it's not just that the enmity runs from him to us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul has a sort of diagnosis here of the heart of fallen man. Let me read this verse to you, Romans 8, verse 7. He says, the carnal mind, the carnal means fleshly. 
man's natural state, his natural way of thinking. Here's what Paul says. The carnal mind is enmity against God. That means lost man's mind sees God not as a friend, not as a father, but as an enemy. Someone to avoid. Someone to somehow keep keep out of your life. You say, well, that's just not true. I know a lot of folks. There's a lot of folks going through the motions trying to pay God to keep out of their life. Happens down at the Catholic Church all the time. Just slip the priest a little bit of money so he can say a mass and keep God off your back. You understand? You say, oh, these people just love God. No, they don't. They'd be flocking to hear him. They'd be flocking to his word if that were the case. The carnal mind, says Paul, is enmity against God. It thinks of God as its enemy, the one who's going to come and do me evil. You say, why wouldn't a man surrender his life into the hands of God? Because he's afraid what God's going to do with him, where God will send him. What God will tell him to do. He doesn't trust him. Right? Or else we'd all be trusting God. But the fact is that man by nature, his mind is at enmity and a state of war between himself and God. He's jealous of God's position. He's envious of his possessions. And he sees against his rule, and secretly desires his removal and his absence. You say, Brother Mark, that's ridiculous. Go back to that parable of the vineyard. When God sends his son, what do they say? Let's kill him. You have to understand that man's fall is an attempted deicide. I say attempted because, you see, you'll never kill God. But if they could, they would. And when they could get their hands on the God-man, they did. That's the enmity in the heart and mind of man against God. Now, some of you may be thinking, but wait a minute. We just read over here in 1 Thessalonians 5, if I can... Find it again. Took me a while the first time around. Verse 23. The God of peace sanctify you holy. If God is a God of peace, then what do I have to worry about? Well, that's like saying to a criminal, if a justice is the justice of the peace, what are you worried about? You see, the God of peace keeps peace, makes peace by subduing his enemies. That's how he does it. Paul will write the Romans and says, The God of peace shall bruise, crush Satan under your feet shortly. The God of peace is not at peace with Satan, you understand. He's your God. He's at peace with you. But he's not at peace with Satan. He's going to crush him under your feet. In the same way, we have peace officers. You say, well, they have a wonderful life. They're just going around, you know, enjoying the peace. Sort of like the old hippie, you know, peace. No, the peace officer is out there looking for the fellow who is disturbing the peace. The peace officer's job is to subdue the evil man, to keep and maintain a state of peace. In the same sense, the Lord of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ in our text, is going to come back one day. Let's look at what the Lord of peace is going to do. You're in 2 Thessalonians still? Just turn a page. 
Chapter 1, verse 7. To you, Paul writes, who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus, that's the Lord of peace. When the Lord of peace shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Lord of peace for you. He's coming back to exercise vengeance on evildoers. And so, yes, the Lord of peace is bringing peace through his son, Jesus Christ. But that peace, that's not good news for the evil man. Because God will subdue all evil, all wickedness in one of two ways. The first way... Now, I'm sort of reminded here when I was having problems with my heart back there and I had fluid build up and I couldn't get my heart to pump. Man, I'd try to go from the bed to the bathroom, stand there gasping for air like I'd run a hundred-yard dash. So I went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, I understand the problem. You got fluid around your heart. He said, we got, we got two possibilities, two ways of treating this. The first way is this great big long needle. I said, what's way number two? <laughs> let's, let's get away rid of option number one here, that big, long needle. Well, that's sort of how I feel here. God is going to subdue all wickedness in one of two ways. And number one is not what you want. He will subdue it by putting your worthless soul in hell forever and ever because the offense against this infinite God. That's one way he's going to make peace. He will conquer his enemies. We read about it in that previous chapter where Christ will be the instrument of making peace. You know, we have this somehow idea, the you know, the loving, kind son and the sort of uptight, harsh, hard father. Oh, no, my friend, the father and son are on the same page, always on the same page. And here we see the son exercising the judgment upon wicked men that his father has ordained. So that's one way, crushing out the rebellion, punishing your wickedness in hell forever and ever. That's way number one. Way number two is for God himself to enter into the picture. To come and do whatever it takes to make peace between himself and his people. This is called the gospel. God came in the person of his son to preach peace by and through the son. God has allowed the fall of man for a couple of reasons. The main thing is that he has allowed it to glorify his name, to magnify his attributes. My old friend Jim Gables once pointed out to me, if it wasn't for the fall, we'd never know anything about the wrath of God. We'd never know anything about the severe justice of God if it wasn't for the fall. You see, the lost man in hell is going to glorify God, whether he wants to or not. He's going to glorify his attributes of God's justice, his holiness. But God is also, in allowing the fall, showing his attributes of mercy, grace. Do you realize also, had there been no fall, 
there would have been no opportunity for God to magnify his love for sinners, his compassion for sinners, his mercy and his grace. And so in allowing the fall, the opportunity is now provided whereby God can first and foremost glorify his own name. And he does it, secondly, through electing out of mankind a people whom he will deign for salvation to be the objects of his mercy and his grace, a people that he will make peace with. He is going to come through his Son to make peace with a segment of humanity, not with all men, but with a segment of humanity that will be brought into a peace relationship. Now, I realize some of you are saying, well, if warfare exists between me and God, why are we still here? I mean, he's a whole lot bigger than we are. He has a lot bigger bombs than we got. Why is he still here? Well, we technically are still at war with North Korea, aren't we? But there's been a cessation of hostilities. For God's own reason, he could have stamped us out right after the fall, been done with it, sort of like I'd squash a roach. He could have been done with all. He could have prevented the fall. All he had to do is chop a head off one snake. <laughs> but he certainly could have punished us all in our first parents. And we, where would you be if Adam and Eve had been uh, squashed out in the garden? Well, we wouldn't be here, would we? But instead, God has called an armistice, a truce, a ceasefire of the hostilities between himself and us. We are living in a time of cessation of conflict. And folks, it's not going to last. That's what we were reading about in the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. There's a day coming. When Christ will come and all that wrath that is being held at bay, that wrath is coming down on mankind. But in the meanwhile, there is an offer of peace on the table. We'll talk about that more next time. God has a stance of peace towards man through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of peace. But you understand that you will never know that peace apart from him, Our text hints at that, 2 Thessalonians 5. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. That this Lord gives peace by coming into your life. You'll notice the term give you peace. If ever folks like you and me, rebels that we are, ever are in a state of peace with God, it'll be because somebody gave it to us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do whatever was necessary to come up with some sort of peace offering to appease the wrath of God. If ever you and I are in a state of peace with God, somebody's going to have to give it to us. And the Lord of peace, he's the one, he's the Lord. He's in control. He's the sovereign over this thing called peace. And that's one of the beautiful things about our Savior. He is able to give you peace with God. You say, where am I going to find it? You're going to find it in Him when you come into a relationship with this Lord of peace. Then you will enter into a state of peace with the Father. You get it when the Lord of peace is with you. 
And you'll get this peace only when the Lord of peace becomes your Lord. Let me lay it on the table. As long as you resist the demands of the Lord of peace, you will never be at peace with God. If you're outside of Christ, then you're not in a state of peace with God. Oh, may you come and bow the knee to the Lord of peace. May you come to the Prince of Peace and bow before Him that He is your peace. Give it up. Throw down the weapons of your warfare and surrender to the Lord of peace. Have I made it clear? We're going to talk about the details. How in the world can God come into this world and make peace with a bunch of rebels? That number one, His justice demands that they be punished. And number two, they don't want to be at peace. (laughs) How do you do that? How do you accomplish this impossible task? That's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. And then we're going to talk about the wonderful blessing of peace that floods the soul of the believer once he realizes what has happened to him in his salvation. Being justified by faith, Paul writes in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. And what that means, that the God who was against you is now for you. The God under whom you were, His wrath, is no, you're now under His love. You're standing, it's almost like Paul describes a field. And you're out there in this field called grace, where the grace of God is pouring down on your head. What a blessing to those who have found this peace with God. And when they find it, they find that it is a peace. How does Paul put it here? May He give you peace always. By all means, at all times, in every situation, the peace that Christ gives will never abandon you, will never desert you. Oh, what a blessing it is to be a believer, to be a Christian. Some of you may be like me. You've been a Christian so long as you take some of this just for granted. There are times that we need to go back and remember what we were, what we deserved, How it could have been that God's grace could have passed us by so very easily. He passed by others. That only by His sovereign grace was I called out of my foolishness, my enmity. And peace was restored between myself and my Creator. Oh, what a blessing. Let us never get used to it. Let us never get over it. And may the peace of God flood our souls through believing in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks that You came and did what we ought to have done but wouldn't and couldn't. Father, in our impotency and our foolishness and our folly, we were braving the omnipotent judgment of our Sovereign, the Lord of heaven and earth, and all that implies And, Father, we deserved nothing but judgment 
the everlasting destruction that we read in this letter. And yet, Father, for your own purposes, for your own reasons, to glorify and magnify your own name, you salvaged us. You decided to make of us a vessel of mercy rather than a vessel of wrath. You opened our eyes and remade us, as we've read earlier today, a new creature in Christ Jesus. You have flooded our soul with wonderful things, blessings uncountable, but especially this one. Peace with our God and the peace of our God residing in our hearts. Thank you for your love for us for this wonderful work. Father, our words, we stumble and bumble because we simply don't have words to describe the enormity of it. Our words fail us, but Father, we can only reflect your word, what you have revealed to us that you've done through your Son. May you exalt him in our sight. And Father, our desire is to see your name exalted through the salvation of sinners. That's why we go with this message of peace into a fallen world, seeking those who will turn and be reconciled with our God, seeking that people that you have ordained for peace. Bless us in that endeavor. May our eyes behold it, and we give you the thanks for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.